Hi, and welcome to New Narrative Southeast Asia Dispatches. I'm your host, Bonnie Bell Ramatan, Editorial Manager for New Narrative. New Narrative is a movement to democratize democracy in Southeast Asia, and this podcast is one of the ways we attempt to do just that. In this episode, we're going to talk with one of New Narrative's in-house researchers, particularly on the topic of migration. That's right, New Narrative runs its own research department, which is part of our process of knowledge creation. Conventional research, especially on Southeast Asia, is often top-down and quantitative. Statistics, rankings, and so on. It's dry, distant, aloof from the voices of the people. Now, New Narrative doesn't do that. We believe that the people of Southeast Asia are the best experts on their own lives. When we conduct our research, we ask people directly. In this way, our research empowers people and gives them a voice. New Narrative is also an actor in Southeast Asia, and as such, we try to bring together fellow independent media organizations and workers. We brainstorm for collective solutions and build a regional consciousness to help us all take collective action to fight for more media freedom. That's what we call research as activism. In line with this, we approach the topic of migration research by drawing attention to the systemic failures of our countries that people and communities have to pay for by migrating around the world in less than ideal conditions. Our research highlights the environmental degradation resulting from reckless policies, the heartbreaking circumstances that lead Indonesian women to seek to migrate, and the self-destructive ways through which governments can actively encourage their people to desire being exploited, among others. Hi everyone, my name is Lenga Pradipta, and currently I'm working as a migration researcher in your narrative. Uh, and my field of research is about migration, but particularly more about environmental migration. That's Lenga Pradipta, a part-time migration researcher at New Narrative. Previously, she worked in several international organizations and also research institutions. Her latest writing can be found in Rutledge book series Risk Perception and Disaster Management of Women in Dealing with Floods in Urban Indonesia. Today, we'll be talking about her work on the entanglement of migration and environmental degradation in Kalimantan, the Indonesian part of Borneo. Okay, so uh, let's just jump right ahead into your area of research. Can you tell us briefly about the history of migration itself, especially in Indonesia? Uh, if we talk about the migration programs in Indonesia, it actually happens like centuries ago. But if we talk about transmigration, it's actually started uh, in 1950s after the forest degradation and forest colonialization happened in Indonesia. So let's say it's like more than uh, 70 years until today. So we are now on the still on the process of migration. Can you tell us more about how it got started in the beginning? Like what was the program really? And what, did, uh, what was the narrative of the government to persuade people to migrate and stuff like that? And how did it play out? Okay, it's actually uh, started when Indonesia got its Independence Day, 1945. So we are actually under the influence of the Dutch uh, system at that time. So even though we're, we were um, got the freedom, but some of the whispers from the World Bank and the IMF is still like a, a threat for us uh, because they asked Indonesia 
to be the center of agriculture and as the center of the forest degradation. Why I said so? Uh, when World Bank and IMF try to persuade developing countries at that time, they are pushing us to produce uh, the timber productions. And of course, since Indonesia has plenty of island, which was still virgin, so Kalimantan and Sumatra at that time was chosen to get the timber explorations. Along with that timber explorations, uh, like 20 years after that, People and government then try to think about the another extractive industries that can be conducted in Sumatra and Kalimantan. And then government, because Indonesian government has turned into uh, a new order era under Suharto's. So it's like uh, intention to bring up such oil palm plantation in Indonesia and then to cultivate that oil palm people from Java Island, which is very populated, are relocating to Kalimantan and Sumatra. So this huge business is actually followed by the transmigrations. As we all know, if there's no more people in that island and people do such business there, who's gonna handle that? Of course they need people. That's why government at the time was relocating people to cultivate the land in the Kalimantan and Sumatra especially Kalimantan. Would you say they were um, successful in persuading people to move there? Uh, were there like waves of all of these migration and they actually got their new economic livelihood and stuff like that? Did it work out for some people? Did it not work out for certain groups of people? So how did it play out really? Uh, in terms of successful, of course, there's always two sides of coin if you're relocating people. Uh, let's say if the people from Jaffa feels happy that they got the new land in the Sumatra and Kalimantan. But then, of course, government at that time didn't consider about the indigenous people, which is cannot be easily adapted to the plantation, to the new migrant. So it's like a conflict there, like a mental conflict and then social conflict, which press people to accept it, the newcomers. So, you know, can you imagine how devastated they are, the indigenous people in Kalimantan? Can you maybe talk about, uh, talk more about these environmental effects and effects on the indigenous population that we can still feel until today? As I mentioned before, that environmental migration, especially the forest degradation, is actually happened since 1950s. And then along with the transmigration, degradation of the forest is getting massive. But it didn't stop at that point. So even though Indonesia got the reformation era at 1998, and there's a lot of term, you know, upside down uh, in Indonesia's government system, we were actually adopted this decentralization. At that time, um, legislative, the executive, and also judicative part thought that, well, we can try the decentralization systems because after this, all the authority will be given to the regional or to the province or to the, you know, district level. But then, actually, decentralization is not always good because sometimes it created the small king in the province, which is it makes giant corporations like mega corporation is easily 
to influence and persuade them to destroy the forest. So can you imagine? Because Indonesia is very big. It's very hard to control what happened in the district level or provincial level because at the time, the government still occurred in Jakarta. So, of course, during the, this timeline of history, we can assume that uh, even though that decentralization was good, but there's always a weakness in decentralization that makes people become devastated and forest degradation still continue until today. So there's this interesting dynamics that you're hinting at here between uh, the indigenous people aren't getting their aren't getting their voices heard, but at the same time they're still not getting heard even if we decentralize, right? So it's a decentralization process without listening to the needs of the of the indigenous people, right? Um, do you think it could have been done uh, in, in, in another way? Like what what would you say would be uh, better for the indigenous people there? Transmigration is actually a process of people to mobilize. So it's not about the process, which is failure, which makes such failure, but it's how the process involves many sectors or many, uh, you know, many stakeholders. So if the transmigration process conducted well by the government and they did such research on it, for example, they did research on environment, they did such research on how indigenous people will uh, you know, will adapt it or will adjust it with those new nuances. And also uh, doing research on how transmigration um, will affect it on the other issues of life, such as livelihood, such as um, job opportunities. I believe that this is not going to be like a mind-blocking for transmigration process. What What is the 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 way out of this? Is it bad or good? So it's not about good or bad. But I think and I believe that my transmigration process should be followed by in-depth research and consideration. So it's not about relocating people only, but also how you studied about the environment and the forest in that area. Because it's impossible you're relocating people, but you didn't provide such livelihood for them. Because we know in Kalimantan, the source of food and the source of livelihood is a forest at that time. I think it's a contra if we talk about how transmigration affected uh, migrants' life because migrants also sometimes they could be uh, called as the victim of the the process. But yeah, uh, they are voiceless because at that time in 1960s, 1970s, there is no uh, public awareness conducted by NGOs or scholars because we all know at that time there's a lack of uh, access to that. How would you say the situation uh, is different today, or maybe some in some ways they're still similar? Because of course, uh, you know, there's this new discourse about uh, moving the new capital city, right? The Ika and Ibu Kota Negara. There's this whole new program which is asking people once again to to migrate there. Uh, but at the same time, we still have all of these uh, challenges, all of these lack of research. Do you think the situation is, is even worse today? Do you think it's better in some ways? In what ways do you think they're similar and different? Rome wasn't built in a day. The new capital wasn't built in a day. So uh, that old phrase is, is really like, um, you know, like reassured me that relocating people to the East Kalimantan, the new uh, capital, is not that easy. It, it couldn't be conducted like in a blink of an eye. 
um, actually, our president have a very ambitious target. So he wanted to relocate mostly people or government employee, particularly in 2024. Just, just a second before the general election will be held. Okay, so some scholars, which is concerned about politics, says that it's a hidden agenda by our president. But some, uh, you know, urban planners, which is uh, defeated and, and, you know, always uh, say that Jakarta will be saying, Jakarta will be, uh, you know, will be not lo no longer in 50 years. They are agree with this planning to relocate the capital. But again, urban planners think about planning and infrastructures and facilities, right? Uh, because they're engineers. So, of course, they thought and they think like an engineer. It's not their mistakes because that's their background. But again, somehow, I saw that there is few anthropologists and few sociologists which involve in this massive planning, which is, of course, it's not a good indication of relocating people if you don't have a study about anthropology and sociology. In that respect, I mean, the, the government also keeps pushing this narrative of like national development and it's going to be better for Indonesia. It's going to be, you know, make the country more competitive. We see that keep uh, uh, it keeps playing out. Like you mentioned IMF and the World Bank earlier in the in the 80s and, and the 90s. And then now we, all, we still have those those myths as well. But at the same time, those are um, sociological myths about about competition, about about you know, but then they don't involve any sociologists or anthropologists there. Um, what are what are your thoughts on this? I mean, why do why do you think we keep disregarding all of these expertise? That's actually quite necessary. Uh, it's very interesting, Bonnie. Your questions. Um, why I really uh, appreciate the social sciences should be included in the you know development of the new capital in Kalimantan, because as Charles Darwin mentioned. The one who can survive is not the smartest one or the, or the prettiest one or the handsome one, but the one who can adapt it to the ecological changes. So again, if um, human like us, like me, like you, if we couldn't adapt it well, if someday we will relocate to Kalimantan, I think it's, it's very nonsense that we can make it. So there should be a very in-depth assessment and research on how people will cope and how people will adapt to the new environment. Because we get used to live in Jakarta, we, we get used to live in urban, and suddenly you're moving to Kalimantan, even though they say it's very promising because they make the green cities. But of course, again, Rome wasn't built in a day. So it needs a decade, I guess, 10 years. Are you confident about the "quote unquote" greenness of this project, though? I mean, still, like a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the conversations involved, especially when you talk about plantations and stuff like that. There's still a lot of um, you know hints that people still think that these natural resources are somehow infinite, and you know, uh, even if they say that oh, it's green, it's renewable, but that's uh, in practice that's always like secondary or tertiary to other considerations, right? So why do you think people keep buying into this? Why don't we really, you know, why don't people see this as really super urgent 
right? Because about these natural resources, about these environmental degradation. It's very like problematical. There is a promising by our government that they say the new capital will be a green cities and it's very technological friendly for peoples and other, you know, like dreamy words provided by the government. But again, the soil type and soil characteristic in Kalimantan is not the same with Jakarta. If, if, if the ecologists want to study about Kalimantan deeply. So if they want to build, um, you know, a high-risk building in Kalimantan, it's not as easy as you build the high-risk building like in Jakarta. Why? Because the ecological um, vibes in Kalimantan and also the trees sectors and also um, the indigenous people also in Kalimantan is very different with Jaffa. So how could you ensure that people will relocate to Kalimantan or, or the indigenous people will adapt to the new things if there is no research-based evidence that you give to the people that, yes, we can relocate that because we're doing such assessment like this, this, this. Uh, and also, unfortunately, what I really concern here, if you also uh, pay attention, it's not only about the issues of the relocating capital, but the newest issue about the food estate, which led by the Ministry of Agriculture, if I'm not mistaken, and the Ministry of the Defense, it's also very distracting because the location is not far from the uh, East Kalimantan. They are in the same island and there's a degradation there. So if you're allocating people, means you have to get a food source and also water source. And now that water source is disappeared because of the big trees has been cutting down. As we all know in the biology class that we just uh, uh, studied in our high school, the trees is actually the water conservations, uh, you know, for, for water conservation. So it's a very, well, I'm not, I'm not contra with the capital relocation, but I think it's just not the right time to make the target to 2024 because it's like, oh my God, it's very impossible to do that in these two years. Um, yeah, do you think we might be suffering from one of those, uh, like, it's a microscosm because, like, Indonesia is rich in resources and that's why we get exploited. That's why uh, people from the global north plunder us. But then it, it keeps repeating on a smaller scale in, in Indonesia, we're plundering other islands, like, outside of Java, because Java has been developed to a certain degree. Uh, do you think a similar thing is going on? Like, we are now uh, relocating to... Relocating to uh, Kalimantan and then and then all of these um, exploitation will keep happening. But why do you think that's the case? I mean, you did mention in one of your talks about like the curse of natural resources. Do you think there is that element as well? Yeah, uh, exactly. So I ever mentioned in one discussion also with your narrative that most of developing countries in Asia and some in Africa, we are get infected by the course of by the curse of natural resources why because you know when 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 a country has enormous natural resources but their 
human resources index is not as high as the small country which is developed. It's not uh, fair or apple to apple if we compare Indonesia to Singapore or Brunei Darussalam because it's very different. But since Indonesia and other uh, developing country is very huge in terms of land cover, in terms of um, you know forest resources, so it's very easy uh, for the you know investors and the mega corporations to attach with our lands. Meanwhile, we don't know how to uh, how to you know stick on our natural resources because we, not all of us, but the majority of indigenous people and local people in Indonesia still have lack of education and knowledge. Well, actually, it's getting better now. Since 1990s, there was some NGOs, uh, either international or local, that give such, you know, uh, knowledge and empowerment uh, training. But then, yeah, um, the number is not that big if we compare to the number of the populations of indigenous people. So spreading some knowledge or uh, information is very useful for them because of course NGO cannot work alone. They need, they, they need scholars, they need media, um, and not all media will inform this part because they also get, you know, I don't say donation, but you know, support from the mega corporation. So it's like, um, you know, you got the curse of natural resources, you want to escape, but then you have a lack of information sources. So yeah, I mean, that's actually the issue here. And I think there's a huge problem also of um, power relations and power imbalance, right? I mean, you mentioned that there's a whole host of problems that we inherited from the colonial era uh, that I think uh, you know, replicates in the patterns of migration that we currently have. And on top of that, when you, when you're saying about like these huge corporations, obviously um, spreading information about what they're actually doing, about uh, doing thorough research about their impacts and stuff like that, can get dangerous, right? Because you know, we see people, we hear about people getting disappeared or even getting killed, or even those in in those attempts, right? Um, so. What do you think should be done there? Is is it if if it's if it's not safe? If it's not like how do we move forward from here? Do you reckon? As, as a researcher, you know, um, if you get deep, obviously you you realize that if you get like super deep and super specific about certain particular corporations and their particular effects, for example, it it might be dangerous for you. So, what are your thoughts on that? If we talk about how I will react to this, I will mention one of the theory which was occurred like, like years ago, it called pattern client. So in Indonesia, these pattern client systems um, almost adapted by many investors to the locals people or to the indigenous people. And then the questions came up, where's the government, right? Because it's like investors and local people, where's government? Our government is actually have power to say no to the investor. But because of the forest has been cut and then uh, altered into the oil palm plantation, 
government even asked for our military to take care of the oil palm plantation. If you pay attention that many research talks about, ah, the forest in Kalimantan has been, um, you know, owned by the military. Or the forest in Sumatra and Sulawesi is also occupied by military. It means, and here, at first, the intention of government is good. They, they send the military, they, they send their troops into the, you know, virgin area or isolated area. But then these troops, as we all know, they are troops. They're not educated. Because in Indonesia, we know the level of the army and military, right? It's impossible to send the general to the Kalimantan. Of course not. So they send the very, you know, uh, the very low army to those areas. And then what is the impact? Of course, the impact is the army and the locals and also the migrants get some, you know, some, you know, like two hectares of land and they ask to be cultivated that island. Uh, sorry, that, 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 that land. But how could they cultivate the land if there is no such support from the scholars or the experts? Now, why I can say this, um, if we want to be very straight to the forward, straightforward and honest, there is no such prominent school or universities outside Java, like in Kalimantan and Sumatra. People will migrate to Java to get a good education. So there is a patron client to make the outer island still isolated, not getting the intelligent people to occupy there. So it's like, you know, uh, like a patron client system is very dangerous because it's also the political intrigue that played by the government and the, you know, but it's not the government. It's like the, we call it uh, some actors that get the interest from that, that get the benefit. So yeah, if we want to revamp the conditions, I mean, please don't make a capital first, but provide a good facilitate for universities, schools, educations, for locals. And I guess there's also, um, you know, a, if we're still talking about migration, there's the whole uh, brain drain phenomena where like opportunities for people are mostly still located in Java, right? So we have like reverse migration and there's is all of these complex thing. Um, but yeah, um, this is a whole complex issue. It's a whole complex phenomena, right? We're dealing with, uh, you know, all of the intersections between migration, but also the environment and then the, the, the locals, the indigenous people, and then, you know, uh, potential power abuse by the military. We have like a, a whole lack of democracy uh, going there. But uh, at the same time, it's narrated by uh mostly by the government but also by by other people is is narrated as if you know hey this is the future this is where the opportunity lies this is like this is what we should do you know so i guess we uh, it's it's um one of our tasks is to really fight against these narratives and make people see that hey this is really what's happening right uh you yourself as a researcher maybe can you 
uh, talk a little bit about how you think, uh, what your role is in like informing people, in making people see the relationship between migration, environmental degradation, and stuff like that. Can you maybe talk uh, a bit more about uh, your personal work and your calling this time? Okay, um, because I am an individual. I I'm not uh, representing any government officials or offices or um, corporations. So me as individual means me as a researcher. Of course, all I can do is conducting research, especially ethnographic, to see, to assess, to make a baseline, um, you know, insight about the real conditions of the people in Kalimantan. That's the first step that I will do as a researcher. The second one, of course, elaborating my research into the current regulation, which I believe still have many weaknesses, right? And then uh, it doesn't mean that I mentioned government several times. Uh, they are totally wrong, no. I believe there's some of uh, official that's still defending the rights of the indigenous people. Um, back in 2019, I met Uh, official from the Ministry of Forestry in Kalimantan. Um, he said that Kalimantan is now on the very uh, big dilemma. Then I asked him, um, I am a researcher, I'm not a decision maker. So all I can do is do research and then inform people because that's my responsibility. But I'm not a decision maker because I'm not Um, you know, affiliated to legislative or, you know, formal institutions at that time. And then he said, like, the more I keep informing about Kalimantan, either in social media or either through my publications, it's actually make people wake up that, oh, come on, guys, this is very dangerous. Because for these times until today, Uh, yes, there's a plenty of research about Kalimantan, but there's al always dualism of research. They talk about how important oil palm plantation for the, uh, you know, RSPO product, which is we use it every day, like Unilever's, like uh, many corporations use that uh, oil palm uh, product. And then because they are researchers uh, which concern about the economic benefits. So they keep informing that, hey, oil palm is good. So forest degradation can be, you know, can be uh, paid by the maybe, uh, you know, like social corporate, uh, so, sorry, corporate social responsibility program. But then of course it's not enough, right? So still few research that talks about indigenous people, Talk about human dynamics. If we if we try to you know if we try to search from the content or the journals or the you know the news about Kalimantan, they always say that RSPO is good. Indonesia has already adopted the RSPO systems, and yeah, it's okay to just to destroy your forest. Um, we will replant it again. Don't worry. They say it like that. But of course, replanting trees need decades it, it can't be uh, done in like in 10 years so um again yeah so research is very important 
as I mentioned with my, my, my friend from the Ministry of uh, Forestry, and also a synergy between scholars, government officials, researchers, and also the um, activists of environment. Because sometimes environmental activists act alone. They are not connecting to the scholars. So I think it's a maybe a good start to synergize every uh, stakeholders who put concern on uh, forest degradation in Kalimantan. So don't make them walk alone. Let's uh, let's make a team to beat this uh, phenomena. You're hinting at something something interesting there uh, earlier about you know even if people you know try to look for research and try to you know study and read up on on the effects of uh, palm oil plantation and all of these things they can stumble upon different results right depending on who's doing the research and who's publishing the research and stuff like that right so um what are your thoughts on that i mean if people say you know okay i really want to know what's going on here and then i read up on stuff then how do i know that okay this this research is is like which which research output should I believe if there are other if there are lots of different uh, results and they're conflicting? Uh, research is supposed to be natural. It has to be natural, okay. Uh, but yeah, some of the research conducted by um, the researchers is also based on an orders from some stakeholders. But again, we should see the background or the outputs of the research, whether it's only for economic benefits or it's actually on the side of the indigenous people. So we, as the readers, should be selective in, in, you know, in getting the substances of the research. But again, sometimes the research language is too hard to be understood. So that's the function of the research-based media like new narrative, one of it, to informing people with the modest language. And it's not uh, like you should do this, 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 but it's very um, friendly in words and also applicable to them. So I think it's very helpful to have such research-based media in Indonesia that is very natural. Um, I think one of one of the... Um... For me personally, at least, I tend to look for writings that elevate the voices of the indigenous people, for example, or the ones that really talk about uh, the loss of biodiversity. But I'd like to I'd like to ask your opinion, right? I mean, I mean, as as you as you mentioned, the indigenous population, especially, and the biodiversity of uh, Kalimantan and of other places that are being quote unquote developed is really you know they suffer the most from all of these from all of these programs. Like, so how do we make their voices more heard? How do we amplify these voices? How do we make these loss of biodiversity become more visible? How do we make people see the connections between? Uh, you know, hey, this isn't, you know, the migration program, these plantations, they're not as good as, you know, what people might tell you because these are the effects, right? How do you think we can help amplify these folks? I mean, you've mentioned your role as a researcher, but for example, uh, a new narrative reader or listener, what do you think can be done there? First thing first, we have to ensure that indigenous people got their platform in speaking. We have actually the Aman. So Aman is Aliansi Masyarakat Adat Nusantara. 
So it's like a platform uh, that can accommodate the voice of indigenous people. So Aman have such a um, branch in every indigenous community. They have in Mentawai, they have in Dayak, they have also in Sulawesi uh, Island. So I think Aman should, as a, one of the you know, uh, NGOs, national NGOs, should be get uh, more attention by us as a media, uh, research-based media. Because they are staying there all the time with the indigenous people while we are not. So keep listening to their voices. Um, I think it's the best way. Because it's impossible to make a regulation of locals if we do not know the real condition of them. Because sometimes also, um, you know, in Indonesia, medias like to twist it, the evidence. So it, we are very careful to have relationship with the local NGOs like Aman, I mentioned before, like Tambu Haksinta Foundation, um, while he also, even though while he sometimes is pay attention only on the biodiversities and orang utan, but they also have connect connection to the local people. So I think, uh, you know, working together with NGOs and their activists is the best way. So if the readers want to get more involved with, with Aman or with other uh, of the NGOs that you mentioned, what can the listeners do? Aman is always have a social media. So you can we can keep in touch with Aman to know the updates of the local people and also the condition of the environment in our in that particular area. So we can like make such um, you know like connecting, like send a message or reacting to their activities because they also have like annual event talking about the indigenous people. So yeah, because we are now uh, living in the global area which not always cannot, which sometimes we cannot go to that uh, island by ourselves. I think through um, that organizations, we can hear the news and update of the locals and also can help them because Aman is also uh, provide such donations uh, for the program that they conducted for the indigenous people. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Lenga, for your uh, for your really insightful research and insightful uh, presentation just now. It, it's it's been it's been a pleasure uh, talking about all of these things with you. If people want to read more about your research or or find you elsewhere, I think we can always point them to your stuff in your narrative. But also, if if there are other things that you'd like to uh, talk about or you'd like to, you know. Uh, give the readers more chance to reach out to you, maybe you can let us know. Uh, yeah, for all uh, readers of the new narrative, I can be uh, connect and can be uh, keep in touch with me through my social media. Uh, the name is same, Lenga Pradipta in Instagram, in Facebook, in Twitter. Um, uh, feel free to chat me um, or to give comment on the posting. So yeah. Uh, and also, don't forget to subscribe to New Narrative because there's a lot of information that you guys should know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Linga. Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation. And that was our discussion with Lenga Pradipta. If you'd like to read more of her work, as well as the works of other New Narrative researchers, 
go visit our research page at newnarrative.com research. That's N-E-W-N-A-R-A-T-I-F dot com slash research. At the end of every article, you'll also find ways that you can help to create change. For the issue of Kalimantan, you can support the work of non-governmental organizations working to mitigate environmental degradation in the area, including Walhi, Tambuhak Sinta, Pandu Alam Lestari, and Orangutan Indonesia, the links of which you'll find once again on our website. My name is Bonibel Ramatan, and this has been Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative and produced by Dania Yudo. I'll see you around. <laughs>